Martin Luther said of our passage today, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. <laughs> End quote. So, sermon done, I'll see you, okay? Enjoy that, all right? <laughs> it's a tough passage, perhaps one of the toughest in the New Testament to interpret. I dare not give you the impression that I understand every detail with 100% certainty, but here's the cool thing about a passage like this. It doesn't change the primary meaning of what Peter is trying to get across. That's the cool thing. We might differ about some of the details, but the primary meaning of the passage is still the same. Good and godly people disagree about the details. But this is what we know. Suffering is not a sign of divine displeasure. Suffering is not a sign of divine displeasure. Those who suffer for Christ will be glorified as he was. Blessing came to Christ when he suffered. Blessing will come to us as well. Peter arms us with the faith so that we can suffer well. Now there's information that, that is given, but we want that information to be in our hearts and that we understand these concepts, at least the major strokes that Peter is painting here, okay? Peter arms us with the faith to suffer well. And in this regard, we are similar to Noah. We are a small, embattled minority in a hostile world. But our future is secure, even though we know that judgment is coming. This is what the passage is saying. So let's stand as we take a look at this, and you'll get an idea about what I mean about a difficult passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience uh, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being presented in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's go before the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let's first remember our context. The verse before this, in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Suffering is the topic. Now, suffering can mean a lot of things. In this case, it meant persecution from the culture. And that was going on in Noah's day. It was going on in the first century. It can go on today. That's certainly, I think, 
the main thought in mind. But suffering can come in a lot of different ways as we go through tumultuous times in our lives. But that's the topic. But Christ is the pivot on whether we are going to suffer well or not. And Peter wants us to find hope and encouragement in these words. Never forget that as we kind of wade through these difficult waters to understand what it is he's saying. I'm going to take two weeks to do this. We'll talk about the baptism part next week, but today will be basically verses 18 through 20. It's a common thing throughout the New Testament that Christ suffered and we need to follow his example, that we will suffer with him. Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And in Hebrews we read, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Christ's suffering was unique in that he suffered because of the sins of others. He was the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. There is a finality to this sacrifice that's talked about here. The Greek word actually means once for all. This is in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices that annually the high priest would offer every year for the sins of Israel. And Peter now is making a statement about the absolute sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Hebrews says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The work of Christ on the cross does not need to be revised. It does not need to be repeated. And this, my friends, is the greatest news in the world that you and I do not have to die in our sins. There is forgiveness available for us. Are you like me? That sometimes you get to thinking about the stupid things you've done? I mean, listen, sometimes in my devotions with the Lord, there's, there's shame. There's like, oh man, I... I can't believe, I mean, I, I've got more years than most of you, so I got a list that's fairly long, thoughts, attitudes, actions, but it doesn't end there. God provides forgiveness. Wow. Absolutely. This is why I think people are willing to die for Jesus. Because it means that much to them. They understand what's at stake. And if we jump to 1 Peter 4.1, we read, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Hmm. Let us remember 
Who is writing these words? This is Peter. Peter, who tried to talk Jesus out of suffering. Remember that? As a disciple? He rejected the idea of a suffering Messiah. And we read of the account in the book of Mark. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, arise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. And he began to rebuke him. That takes some gall. Rebuke Jesus, the Son of God. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, certainly I think what Jesus primarily had on his mind is that nothing is going to forego of me setting my face like flint to Jerusalem, that I'm going to have to die for humanity, right? That is certainly the, the primary, I think, reason that Jesus said this. But he says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And what are the things of man? Well, let's be honest about it. There's a lot within Christendom, presentations, that whether it's churches or church life, the Christian life, that we see it just as nothing more than a door of blessing, a door of healing, fostering, you know, business contacts, hanging out with the cool kids. Is that the essence of the Christian life? Nothing wrong with any of those things, but I suggest to you, that's not what Jesus was saying. You know, Peter once had that perspective. That why can't we just be comfortable? And why can't you deliver that for me now, Jesus? I'm too uncomfortable with this idea of a suffering Messiah. And if anything gets in the way of our Christian life, it's us adopting this view that once I become a Christian, God is now the genie in the bottle that I can rub and he can give me what I need to give me comfort now, to answer my prayers now the way I want. And it doesn't work that way. And if I, as a pastor, give you that message, I am derelict in my duty. Christian life hasn't always been easy for me, and I know it hasn't always been easy for you. Christians get cancer. Christians have separation from loved ones. Christians can lose money, lose a job, all kinds of things that happen to us within the family of God. But what I can learn is that suffering can bring a rich blessing that otherwise I would not know without the suffering. We know that Christ's suffering brought us to God. So can we imply from that that our suffering will also be a blessing 
I think so. Now, Christ's death was a perfect sin offering for the sin of others because Christ himself was sinless. The righteous one, Christ, died for the unrighteous, that's you and me. His suffering was undeserved, but he willingly offered himself on our behalf. Listen, I'm not a prophet, not in the strict Old Testament sense. I can't tell the future, but I think suffering is coming in mass for us here in America. I think any person with open eyes can see there is an increasingly reactionary mood toward the church and Christians in America. I once saw a clip, uh, it was actually this week, of a man who asked a professor the simple question, what is a woman? Simple question, what is a woman? And the individual could not answer the question. This was a professor. And as the interviewer began to ask, you know, is there any truth in this area? The man said, I feel you are beginning to do violence with your words because he brought up the word truth. It's now violent. This is the mood. I'm not denying that I think some of what Christians receive is called for because they're rude and brash. But I think the atmosphere is rapidly changing as truth and reality are now privatized feelings. And any hint of a biblical worldview brings rancor and acrimony. Suffering for being a Christian, I think, is imminent. Now, you realize, don't you, that we're unique here. You live in another country. Suffering is going on. There are more people martyred now for the name of Christ than at any point in history. We are enjoying a peace here but it's unlike what is going on in the rest of the world. Bringing us to God is life's greatest blessing. And it's a terrible temptation of the devil for us to think that in suffering, God has forsaken us. Listen, it is, it is one of the, I think, 24-7 temptations for any church is what am I presenting? What are we presenting to people in terms of the gospel and in terms of the Christian life? Is it real? And do the, do the people on the stage emulate things that are really genuine and real about the Christian life? Or are we putting on a show, putting on a masquerade, how everything is hunky-dory, and if you believe God, everything is going to turn out right, that is just not the way it is. Is it okay to say, get behind me, Satan? See, what, what Peter is saying is that, you know, I've learned my lesson. Suffering is no sign that God has forsaken us. 
or turned against us. Christ has carried our sin, absorbed the wrath of God, has kept us safe. John Piper said this. I can't say it any better than he said it, so I'm going to quote it. Why would anyone become a Christian if what you could offer them was that things in this world would probably go worse for them and that their lives would be at risk? The answer is that the greatest human needs are not to live long on the earth and be comfortable. The greatest human needs are not to live long on the earth and be comfortable. The biggest human needs are how to have our sins forgiven and overcome our separation from God and live forever with happiness in his presence instead of living forever in misery in hell. That's 10,000 times more important than living long on the earth and being comfortable for a zillionth percentage of your existence. End quote. Christ has put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Put to death in the flesh means the death of the body of Christ. Made alive in the spirit, well, there's a couple different ways you could take this. One is that Christ was separated from God the Father while taking sin upon himself on the cross, and in that sense experienced a spiritual death, but shortly thereafter was revived by God in the spirit. Another view that I think is... um, more fitting to the passage, is to speak of the contrast between the physical, visible, transitory things which belong to this present world and then the invisible, eternal things which can exist in the unseen spiritual world of heaven and the age to come. So made alive in the spirit can refer to the sphere of power and authority of Christ. Just a chapter later, Peter says of Christ, to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. First of all, let's just notice the obvious, and that is that Peter is treating the ark and Noah as a historical event, that this actually happened. If you don't believe me, you can go to Kentucky and see the ark. All right, I'm just using the ark. Just a joke, all right? The point is that it's a historical event, right? And so... Peter is saying, because it happened, there are some things that we can learn from this. Several views to interpret this passage. One is that Christ was was proclaiming victory over evil angels that had sexual relations with women in Genesis 6. Now, there are all kinds of things to say about that and what was going on. But these rebellious angels, in this view, are cast to a place of judgment, and Jesus is proclaiming victory over them sometimes after dying on the cross. Now, this view has some merit because spirits is often used of angels and of that realm in the Bible, and also 
This interpretation is found within early Jewish literature. There's another interpretation. And by the way, I give you these not to throw you off, but just in terms of being intellectually honest about what's going on here. But I'll I'll tell you the, the view that I hold to. And I'm not saying that it doesn't have issues itself, but it's just the one that I think has less problems. Uh, Another interpretation holds that spirits refers to human spirits, those who've died in Noah's day and were in the realm of the dead. Christ went to them after his death on the cross and either gave them a second chance of salvation, as some think, or proclaimed his victory over sin. Now, this view is probably my least favorite, least held view, um, because I think it's fraught with more problems than the other two. The last view I want to give you here is that Jesus preached to Noah's sinful generation through the person of Noah, who was living on earth. And Augustine and others hold this view, that Christ spoke by means of the Holy Spirit through Noah, and the New Testament speaks of Christ uh, speaking through prophets in the Old Testament, so that's nothing new, and that those who rebelled in Noah's day are now spirits in hell. I'll talk about that more in a second. Each view has its issues, admittedly. And again, I'm thankful that the point of this passage still remains that we are to suffer well and that we're to pivot from Christ when it comes to enduring suffering. Now, whether Christ spoke through Noah, who descended uh, and then descended to where the demons are, or was talking to human spirits in hell, or speaking to uh, humans during the time of Noah, the main point is still that God's power overcomes the power of evil, that his power is demonstrated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that in God's omnipotence, We need not be afraid of these evil powers. So with that in mind, I personally hold to the third view. Our text says, Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. The word used for proclaim is not the normal Greek word that's used to preach the gospel. It means to to announce, which is why it says, Proclaim. 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a herald of righteousness. The idea is that Noah preached repentance to those around him. 1 Peter 3.20 says when God's patience waited, and this follows with who formerly did not obey. This strongly suggests that the preaching is repentance on the part of those who disobeyed, otherwise there'd be no need to mention waiting because of God's patience. Jesus also referred to Noah in this way when he said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood came, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So the content 
of this proclamation is sinners needing to repent and look to God. Now, Peter also spoke of the Spirit of Christ active in the Old Testament. When he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the Spirit of Christ was active in the Old Testament figures, indicating and predicting. First century believers were to be encouraged reading this letter from Peter because like Noah, they bear witness amid hostile surroundings. They can be assured that God is going to give them ultimate victory and bring to judgment those who oppose him. So, who are the spirits in prison? Well, I think they're likely people who rejected the message of uh, repentance during the time of Noah. Those in the time of Noah have died, and the spirits of these unbelievers are now in captivity awaiting the judgment of God. And we read, by the way, of the unbeliever's judgment. I'm not going to read it now, but we read of that in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Jesus Christ was also speaking through first century Christians to their unbelieving persecutors as they bore witness in a hostile world. And Noah faced the same type of opposition in his day. Now listen, it's admittedly an awkward way for Peter to refer to the dead unbelievers in this way. But I think it's fitting because Peter does not write in a poetic way. He writes in almost a staccato way, a even choppy manner. But listen, inserting events without a chronological order in a sentence is a speaking style not unknown to us. For instance, I could say, The king of rock, Elvis Presley, was born in 1935. Well, I'm not claiming that Elvis was the king of rock when he was born, but later he became such. So these spirits who are now in prison, they were people on earth at the time of Noah. Now, it's unlikely that this verse refers to Jesus going to the place of the dead and preaching to the spirits there, though some interpret this way. If Peter's point is that Jesus went to preach to all the dead, why would he say that they were once disobedient on the days of Noah? There are presumably millions of spirits who had not lived in the days of Noah. Jesus went to preach in the days of Noah to people who because they rejected Noah's proclamation are now in prison awaiting final judgment. In addition, God's judgment was clearly put upon humans and not upon angels or fallen angels. 
And I think this gives them now that these spirits are referring to human beings. We read in Genesis 6 this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Genesis does not say that God was sorry that he made angels, but that he was sorry that he made man. It does not say that God decided to blot out fallen angels, but man. Genesis does not say the violence and corruption practiced by angels arouses God's anger, but what was practiced by man. In addition, Peter defines the recipients of Noah's proclamation as those who formerly disobeyed in the days of Noah when the patience of God was waiting during the days of the building of the ark. This is, has a natural meaning of people. So seeing the spirits in prison as humans, I think, seems the better interpretation. Peter is clearly drawing parallels between Noah and the persecuted Christians during Peter's time of writing. There was disobedience in Noah's day, and there is in the first century, and there is now. God was patient in Noah's day, and was patient with rebellious people in Peter's day, and he's patient now, waiting to execute his judgment. Listen, if you're like me, you get really frustrated at looking at what's going on in the world. You know, Gary already mentioned, you know, Uvalde, Texas. Uh, you look at Russia invading another country, people dying needlessly. And you look at all other things going on in the world. The evil that go on, goes on in the world, and I'm thinking, God... Why don't you stop this evil? Why does this continue? It's a fair question. And then we read something like this. It says, God is patient. Did you ever understand it this way? That God is merciful that any of us are alive? Because we're all have sinned, Right? God isn't ready to put down the hammer finally and completely yet, but it will come. That gives me hope that even those that seem to disobey God, you know, they don't seem to get it. Oh, trust me, they will get it. It's up to God. It's not up to me. It's up to God to show them that. And that there will be a finality to this justice of God. God is being patient. The other thing we see, Noah was part of a small minority to enter the ark. First century Christians were also a persecuted minority, and so it's the same today. Listen, the minute that we as a church make it as our goal to just be cool so that the culture likes us is, I think, the minute that we lose the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to minister to people. You don't have to try to be cool. Just be yourself. And just allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and control you. But I'm not trying to impress people with something to make our show better than the next. Just 
preach the word of God faithfully, be honest about our experience in the Christian life, and I think God is going to use that in people's lives. I don't have to cover it up with all this veneer, seeking political clout, approval from the culture to avoid suffering. I think these are wrong-headed goals. Noah proclaimed boldly to unbelievers around him, and Peter exhorts these suffering Christians to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Point to Christ, and I think he's saying the same to us. Point to Christ when people ask you, why are you experiencing this peace in the midst of this suffering? Why, when you went through this incredibly difficult passage of time, that you're not just completely forgetting God, going the other direction, saying fooey on God, Because God is there, because he loves us, because his promises are still true. And sometimes, listen, sometimes that's all faith is, okay? And I know there are people who think, well, now faith is believing that God will bring you that money, will bring you that healing. I'm not poo-pooing that. I mean, that's great if you have that kind of faith, but I'll tell you what, it seems like in pastoring you meet up with a lot of people who are way past that. They're just trying to believe whether God is still here, right? And I think when you look at what Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews says, it says that faith is just believing that he exists and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That's the irreducible minimum sometimes that we get to in faith. I have a heart for that. And if you've never been there, then you don't understand it. People don't want you quoting a bunch of Bible verses to them. You just sit with them in their pain, try to understand, because the fact is, there are a lot of hurting people. But I'm telling you, God is there. He is there, and he loves us. It just takes time sometimes for the head to get the message to the heart, right? Peter also tells them not to fear in Peter 3.14, 1 Peter 3.14. And he says in verses 15 and 16, to always be available to point to our hope in Christ and to do so with gentleness and we're to do the same. Like Christ preached through Noah, he empowers Christians in the first century and he does the same with us. Listen to this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Lastly, we see that Noah was rescued. The believers in the first century can also experience victory and a type of rescue from the suffering that they still have protected for them those things that mean the most in their relationship with God. It said that eight persons were brought safely through water. The same waters that judged the earth in Noah's day lifted the ark to safety and those in it. The water separated Noah and his family from the rebellious human race who perished in the flood. So how do all of these facts minister to us in the midst of suffering? 
Well, one is that we learn that Christ is not bound by space and time. He was there in the days of Noah. He was there in the first century, and he's here today. He ministers in Guatemala. He ministers in Bangkok. He ministers in Russia. He ministers on the Ivory Coast, and he ministers in Missouri. We also learn of the foolishness of seeking comfort until the flood comes. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable. It's just not the goal of the Christian life. Comfort's a lot different than peace. Peace is that inward contentment that God gives us. Comfort is outward things. Don't let anything bother me. Two different things. Suffering is a gift that reminds us of what is most important in our relationship with Christ. We also learn that though we may feel foolish being the minority and feel small like Noah did, being ridiculed by his neighbors, that God has a heart for us and is in the saving business. So we're not to throw away our confidence when suffering comes because it's a pathway to great reward. My dear friends, we can confidently stand in the midst of hostility or whatever that tumult is for you and bear a courageous witness knowing that God gave blessing and victory to Noah. He gave it in the first century and he can give it to us as well. I suppose it's easy to get lost in kind of a theological nitpicking as you go through a passage like this. But I find this immensely practical. Peter, who suffered himself and who witnesses suffering, is trying to encourage fellow believers. And really, any pastor, teacher, friend, Christian, with half a heart, witnesses suffering from other people with broken relationships, sickness, societal pressures, and other pressures. And it's no wonder that we read from a fellow traveler so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. In other words, when you witness the sufferings of Christ and for Christ, if you're influencing other people in the body of Christ, have an empathetic heart. Lead like a gentle shepherd. Relate like that. Not as a task master pointing out what everybody's doing wrong. That was the heart of Peter, but more importantly, that is the heart of our Heavenly Father. Because there are sometimes all we can muster. God, I know you're here, but I don't feel it. And maybe God can take that little faith and begin to build and begin to encourage and begin to grow our faith, we begin to see his promises. His presence becomes nearer to us. There will be suffering in our lives. But let us do so as we cling to an all-sufficient, omnipotent, deeply caring provider in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.